Can you imagine what it would have been like for these disciples on Sunday morning? I mean, just imagine for a minute. I, I mean, the miracles performed, the teaching given, all the words shared, the life shared, and Jesus is dead in a tomb. I mean, it, it had to be a moment of deep grief for them. They did love him. And when we lose loved ones, we grieve. But not just mourning and grief. There had to be a measure of fear. I mean, Jesus did, he was crucified in insurrectionists. They tend to gather up the friends of insurrectionists. They don't just let them go about. So I'm sure there was this fear and grief kind of mixed. And yet what happened on this day was the greatest surprise. Nobody expected it. Nobody planned for it. Even though Jesus had said it, nobody was expecting that Jesus would be raised from the dead. Absolutely incredible. You know, the, the Matthew tells it in very minimalist fashion. I mean, you don't really hear much about the resurrection, really, at all. You hear about the implications of the resurrection, but you don't hear about the actual resurrection much at all. And so I just want to take, and, and for those of us uh, who are here, you're Christian, you believe this, uh, my hope is that you're encouraged to live more boldly, more faithfully, more joyfully. For those that perhaps are not Christian or you're considering it, you're looking at the faith, I pray that you would um, you'd be challenged to reconsider the nature of what we would say is the greatest miracle of all time. And I just want to look at really five aspects of this resurrection. The first one would be that the resurrection is first a public and a historical event. It's not a metaphor. It's not a, it's not a narrative of life. In some respects, it isn't just a religious idea, but it's an actual historical event. You know, from the beginning, the resurrection has been questioned as history. Right? They'll say, well, Jesus didn't really die, he only was unconscious, and, and it was a resuscitation. E even though we have an expert Roman centurion who practiced a lot of executions say that the man died, uh, but people want to say that he was just resuscitated. Others do want to say it's a narrative of life. It, it's kind of a, you know, when you go through difficulties in life and, and you pass through them, you're better for it. You're kind of born again through it. People see the resurrection as that kind of metaphor. Um, other people just want to deny it as a hoax. And you see that in 11 to 15, where they don't think he was raised. In fact, it was a plan. It was a scheme of these apostles to steal the body to make it look as if he appeared. Either way, a lot of different views, but they all land together on this idea it didn't happen. But you notice in the gospel that they seem to teach it as it is a historical event. It actually happened. And, and, and the reason we know that is, at least in the text, a few different ways. One is notice the details. You know, there's certain details of the story. The, the women came in the morning before the sun rose. You see other details, like the names of the women being given. Now, let's go check it out. You know, it, it's a detail that you can follow up on. Uh, another detail would be the angel sitting on the stone. You know, the, the, the mark of a legend is you don't have a lot of details because you don't want to give more details that can be refuted later. You know, th these are actual details. Uh, another mark of the, this as a historical event would be the eyewitnesses. You have Mary and the other Mary. 
she would have been known to the readership or to the audience that he was speaking. They saw him. You have the guards. The guards are actually eyewitnesses. They may be hostile, but they are eyewitnesses. They did see this. They did report. Otherwise, they wouldn't have needed to be paid to change the story. And, and I do want to remind you about eyewitnesses. You know, they still produce the greatest testimony in court or one of the greatest testimonies in court. I mean, think about it. All the history that we believe, it's come to us in the same way. I mean, Christopher Columbus, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War. How do we know these things? How do we believe these things? Well, somebody saw it and somebody wrote it down and passed it on. It's the same way we're getting this news. Uh, and not just, so, so it's historical, not just because of the details and the eyewitnesses, but there is an empty tomb. And, and that is a problem. There is an empty tomb. There was no body there. Now you say, well, maybe somebody stole it. Well, who? Why? I, I mean, the Romans wouldn't have stole it. They didn't care. They wanted to be done with the matter. Uh, the Jews definitely wouldn't have stolen it because that would have only promoted this false idea in their minds that he rose. And the disciples definitely wouldn't have stolen it. Why? Well, they haven't shown any backbone at all. Not only that, but Jesus was convicted as a criminal. And so to steal it makes them criminals. So they wouldn't have had anything to do with it. So, so what I want you to see, just on this first point, maybe a little technical, the Christian faith is grounded in an event that took place in space and time. It's a historical event. Now, why is this important? Well, it's very important because the religious truths that we pull out of this event, if the event isn't true, how can that which we draw from it be true? But if the event is in fact true, then the truths that we draw out of it will be true. Do, do you believe this? I mean, are you certain just in your own mind right now? Do you believe this is a fable or a fantasy? Or do you believe it's true? Are you committed to it? I mean, do you really believe he is alive right now at the right hand of God? The implications are huge. I mean, for those of you that may be doubting it, I, I grant you that. You know, there are doubters. We see in 11 to 15, but we're also going to see uh, next week that there are doubters. I, I would just ask you to consider something for a minute. What would then explain the presence of the church? What would explain the worship time moving from Saturday to Sunday? What would explain these cowardly disciples all of a sudden finding themselves valiant in the faith? And what would explain many of these things? So it's not just the burden of proof doesn't rest on the Christian church alone to establish this truth of him being raised. There is a certain burden of proof on those who don't believe to justify, well, how do all these other events come out of this event that supposedly didn't take place? Okay, the second point I'd like to make with you is that the resurrection, this is very important, vindicates Jesus as the Son of God. Now, you see this in the text. So I'm going to kind of cherry-pick through the text here for just a minute. You see this earthquake, right? Earthquakes in scriptures are not just random shifting of titanic plates in the earth. Earthquakes in Scripture are the announcement of God being present, oftentimes in judgment. But, but, but it's, it's a describing God is present. The earth shakes. We see an angel come from heaven. So an angel being sent. But you notice that this angel is in dazzling white, like lightning. 
Now, you know from Daniel 7, you know from Matthew 17, the transfiguration, you know from Revelation 1, this is actually describing the Shekinah glory of God, that God's glory now is being manifest, authenticating this messenger to say this, that he is not here, he's risen, just as he said. It's really important, just as he said. Little phrase carries a lot of freight because the angel's saying, he already said it. And everything else he said is true. So he's vindicating not just the person of Christ, but he's vindicating the words and the ministry of Christ. It's all true. He's from God. He has delivered you from sin. It's incredibly weighty that, that he is vindicating the Son by this, this paranormal experience. Now remember, Matthew's gospel has been about one thing. It's been about proclaiming Jesus that he is the king over all, right? I mean, we saw that in his, in his birth. He was from the line of David, so he was a king by flesh. The spirit overshadowed Mary, so he's a king, a divine king. He's the God-man together, worshipped by these wise men when he was born. He came and preached that he was king, that he was the Messiah, that he was the suffering servant. He came and preached that he was reconciling sinners to God, that he was establishing a kingdom. That's what Jesus preached. And yet, you know what? Nobody believed him, right? I mean, from his birth, they were, Herod was hunting him down. But not just that. From chapters 12, really, to the end, they rejected him. All his people rejected him. Ultimately, they crucified him. And so God will not allow his son to be in a grave seen as a fraud or imposter or deceiver. So he raises them from the dead to confirm everything that Jesus has done is in fact true. Like Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1, he says, concerning the son descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God is vindicating the Son, authenticating, confirming everything that he is through this resurrection. That's why it's so important. Now, if this is true, if God is crowning Jesus Christ as king by raising him from the dead, then consider the implications in your life for, a minute, for just a minute. I mean, ought not we be full of faith and joy in him? If he is everything that he said, I mean, ought we not abandon our efforts at identity and security in our beauty or our jobs or success or families? Ought we not repent of our continued distractedness, pursuing the lusts of this world when we have one who has died for us and it has been confirmed that he, in fact, is the Son of God, forever reigning, our brother, the king. I mean, wouldn't it call us to deep repentance for our distractedness? Wouldn't it call forth from us a deep admiration and appreciation? It's a problem with preaching the, the resurrection. You all know it, kind of. I mean, it, the familiarity of this text works against it. And, and I don't know how, it's the easiest text to preach, and it's the hardest text to preach. Uh, because to, to stimulate, to encourage you to the joy that you will have,
because of this. And to try to pull that joy into today so that you would be rejoicing over God vindicating the Son. It's a challenge. It's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for all of us. You remember when you came to faith in Christ and, and, and your eyes were open to these truths that Jesus is the Christ of God for us? Your eyes are open and you're excited and then the years progress and it just, it, it can become like many marriages. You love each other, but it just kind of gets a little stale. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to at all. I mean, let's pray for that. God, renew in us. I ask God now, renew in us a joy over this truth that our lives would be governed by it, not affected by it. Okay, the, the, the third truth that we have from this resurrection, if that isn't enough, is that it's the beginning of a new creation. It's the beginning, you know, the earth is shaking, which is kind of showing us that the old order is passing away. And I say that because in Hebrews chapter 12, he says that we're now part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There'll be no more shaking, no more shaking after this shaking. Because now the kingdom of God is established, a new creation has begun. Now, I want to remind you that in the mind of a Jew at this time, they would have believed in the resurrection. They would have just believed in the resurrection to be at the end of the age. So it would have come. Remember that scene when Jesus is speaking to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus? And uh, Jesus says that he'll be raised, and Martha says, oh, I know that he'll be raised on the last day. And that's when Jesus says those words. He says, but I'm the resurrection and the life. What he was getting at was, you're going to see what a resurrection will be like at the end of the age, but really soon. I'm going to give you a picture of it. God's intention is to restore and redeem all of his creation. In fact, Paul says these words to make it clear. He says in, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown imperishable is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown in natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What's he saying here? In the resurrection of Jesus, we have a picture of what our resurrection will be like. So Jesus was raised physically, materially, right? He had a body of flesh and bones. He had feet that could be grabbed. He had a mouth that could eat fish. He had wounds that could be touched. But he was also raised spiritually in that he could go through walls. In John 20, 19, it says the disciples were in the upper room. They were locked and Jesus appeared among us. Or he appeared to the women as they were traveling to the disciples. Jesus ascended into heaven. So Jesus is giving us this picture of what we will be like. See, for the Christian, the resurrection is significant in this way. That many of us see heaven as the terminal point of the Christian. That we die and we go to heaven to be with God. And that's true. We, if we die today, 
For the Christian, you'll go to heaven. But that's not the terminal point of God's work. God never intended the terminal point to be a group of disembodied spirits in heaven in some form of perpetual worship. He didn't intend it to be that way. He intended for us to be raised just like Christ was raised. And so Christ, the, Christ came into the flesh as a spirit came into the flesh so that we who are of the flesh might be moved into the spirit. Jesus, the perfect man, came into our world to suffer, die, be raised, that we might be made perfect. That's Paul's point about the man of dust becomes the man of spirit, as the man of spirit became the man of dust. So what we have here is this incredible promise that when the consummation of all things occurs, God will take your dust and gather it, glorify it, where we will be with God forever on earth. Because in Revelation 21, it says the new Jerusalem will come down to the earth. There's no more heaven and earth as there is now. Why? Because sin will be taken away. It will be one. And so then we will exist as Jesus. So this is a, this is a prototype. It's the first fruits, Paul calls it. And so we will then be dwelling with God on this earth using the gifts and the, and the, and the talents for his glory and for his purposes, imaging him. Think Genesis 2. Think Genesis saying to Adam and Eve that you're going to be fruitful, you're going to multiply, you're going to exercise dominion, you're going to steward my creation as my people. God's plans will not be thwarted by sin. Jesus Christ redeems them and will move us back into, but now redeemed doing it. Now that's incredible to get your mind around. I mean, to think that we'll be living, knowing one another. Under, but in perfect intimacy and in perfect communion without the stain of sin, we'll be, as it were, naked and unashamed, perfectly united together. You see that. It, Jesus is so kind to give us that as a picture. And we'll talk more about that next week. Uh, the, the fourth thing I would point out to you about the resurrection is it does display the kindness of Jesus. You know, it displays his compassion to us. Notice when the women come to the tomb, uh, they are coming to the tomb to deal with a three-day-old corpse. That's what they're going to deal with. They do not expect him to be raised. They're not coming full of faith. They're not coming full of confidence. They're not coming looking for Jesus to be out of the tomb. They're looking to anoint his body and to continue what was started before sundown on Friday. But what do they find? They find the angel. And what does the angel say to them? Where, where's your faith? You know, what's going on? You know, no, the angel said, fear not, fear not. For the one you seek, Jesus, who has been crucified, he's not here, he's risen. I mean, the gentleness toward these women. Not just the gentleness, but, but then, then they're, they're going off to tell the disciples, and who do they meet? Jesus. It, what does Jesus say? Same thing. Fear not. They're muddled. They're confused minds. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't instruct them. He just says, fear not. In fact, you know what he says? He says, greetings. Some people think that's rejoice. Boy, you got reason to, don't you? Rejoice. And they grab his feet. He's kind to them. But, but look at the compassion of Jesus with the disciples. Go tell my brothers. 
my brothers. I mean, I tell you, if a king gets thrown out and he comes back in, he cleans house for those who are not committed to him. And these disciples, if you have seen, they have been like absentee friends. I mean, you haven't seen them since the end of middle of 26. They've deserted him. They've left him high and dry at the moment of deepest needs. They deny him and they scatter and they protect themselves. Go tell my brothers that I'll see them again. You know, the sad thing is, in 26, 32, in Matthew, Jesus had said to them, when you're scattered, I'll see you in Galilee. He told them he would be in Galilee after the resurrection. They didn't believe him. They didn't go. They weren't in Galilee. What they should have done, all the lot of them, they should have gone to Galilee. said, where are you? Sunday morning, you're late. That's what faith would have looked like. But they didn't do that. Why? Because they didn't believe. And yet you see the mercy of God. You know, I'm greatly comforted. I hope you're comforted by this. Many of us struggle in faith. We struggle to believe. We struggle in our fight against sin. We struggle to think that when we pray for our families or we pray for some personal struggle that we have, we're kind of caught between that, that like the man in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. We're this... With this, conf- don't you feel like this conflicted, just pool of emotions with God, mixed motives, uncertain faith, and it kind of tends to cause us to shrink back a little bit from God. Let's not be so expecting of God, because why would God be so good to us? Because look, we can't even have faith in Him. Many of us write ourselves out of God's story because we don't think that God will accept us because our faith isn't up to a level that we deem appropriate for God to move towards us. And yet we see him say, don't be afraid. Tell my brothers. Yeah, I want to encourage you if you have done that, if you've moved yourself away because you haven't walked by faith or you've struggled in sin this week and you're going to really try harder this week so that I'll feel confident with God again. Please, Look at this text and take the attitude and crush it under the weight of that God is far more compassionate in Christ to us than we can ever imagine. He is gentle and he is humble of heart. I would just ask you to turn to him. Ask to be healed. Ask for faith. Ask for grace. Ask for forgiveness. Confess your confused heart. Let him heal you. He is the healer. He loves his people. There's no better way to describe his love than he laid down his life for us while we were yet sinners. So be encouraged in that. Another thing we see in the resurrection is that it leads to worship. I mean, you see it again in the women. You know, they they come and they're told by the angel to go. And go, I'm sure, in fact, the Greek word kind of implies this ecstasy. You can imagine they had to be dizzy They were so excited. They were in fear, and yet they were in ecstasy. Christ has risen. That's what's happened. And they're running to tell the disciples. And then they see Jesus, and that's when they fall at his feet. That's an ancient custom. In worship, you grab the feet. You're not worthy to hug him. You grab the feet, and you kiss his feet. His feet are more worthy than your whole body. So you kiss his feet. That's what they do. Can you imagine? How tightly do you think those women gripped those feet? I I mean, 
Can you imagine? We're not letting go of these feet. I think about how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news. And Jesus brought good news. The feet that brought good news, the feet that were pierced, so they gripped his feet and they were staring at a hole that went through his feet. The feet that brought good news, they worshipped him. I don't want to jump off this too quick because I think Matthew makes it a point. The testimony is given to women. And we've already discussed, as abhorrent as it is, that women were considered lesser in value, uh, definitely lesser in credibility. They who left the tomb last saw first. They were the ones that were to apostle the message to the apostles. Do you know that? Is that amazing? The women are given the role and the task to speak of the resurrection to the, tw- to the 11 apostles. I mean, let us not undermine the roles and the tasks and the responsibilities that Christ confers on women. Let's not understate that. I think even in our evangelical subculture, we can fail to appreciate the emphasis that we find right here in that they are to apostle this message to the apostles. But worship they do. And the reason they worship so desperately is because of the message. He is risen. So what does that mean, he's risen? Well, it means that everything that Jesus said is true, right? So it says in Romans chapter 4, 25, that he was delivered over for our sins and he was raised for our justification. We are now vindicated in Christ. So now we stand before God as children, forgiven forever. So they are worshiping him because they see in him their vindication of all of their sin. They know that they're forgiven. They know that he's a perfect atonement. They know that he's the Lamb of God that's been accepted by God. That's why we worship. This is, oh, happy day, for our sins have been taken away. I mean, this is our day of vindication. Seeing the risen Christ means that we are now innocent before God. I mean, that that should just cause our minds to kind of tumble backwards. I mean, what a day. It's a day to rejoice. It's a day to, how do we, how do we pull back into our lives the joy that should be ours? I, I guess, folks, we just have to declare this to ourselves every day. Every day we need to spend time considering, this is who I am as a sinner, but this is who he is as a savior, and he is far greater at his saving work then I am at my sinning work, therefore I rest. I rest in him because he is sufficient for me. He has vindicated me. He has crushed death, and death has come by disobedience to the law. So in crushing death, he's crushed the law as our judge. And now we live under the law of grace, grace to us in Christ. So let that encourage your hearts. The last thing I would say is probably the darkest thing, and that is in 11 to 15, that the resurrection is not an intellectual, it's not an evidential problem. I touched on this last week, but let me give it a little bit more time. Matthew intends for you to see this passage as really a compare and contrast with the women and the guards. So they they both were at the tomb, they both felt the earthquake, they both saw the angel, they both heard the angel, and they both saw the empty tomb, and they both reported what they had seen, the women to the men, 
to the disciples and the guards going back into the city to talk to the, the priests, the chief priests and the Pharisees. So, so they got the same reality, and we got going in two different directions. But notice the direction here among these men, these guards. These guards go to the chief priests, and they say all that happened, it says. All that happened. So, hey, there was an earthquake. An angel came down. It was lightning. It was white. We couldn't see. We were terrified. The stone was moved. He was sitting on the stone. We couldn't find the body. This is their worst nightmare. I mean, this is a bad day for them. Do you remember what they said? They went to Pilate and said, this man said on the third day he's going to rose again, post a guard. And then he said, make it as secure as you can. Do you notice the ironies in Scripture? Pilate's saying, make it as secure as you can. It's like good luck. I, I hope you really got some good seal. I mean, can you believe it? And, and what, do these, what do these men do? Do they drop to their faces and repent and say, we've crucified the Messiah? Do they drop to their knees and say, God, forgive us? That, that, that we are so ignorant to not hear the words that you were speaking through your son? Did they query the women? Did they go investigate the tomb? Did they do any of that? Reminds me of the chief priests and the Pharisees when Jesus was born. And the wise men went up and said, listen, we saw a star, and we came from the east, and we've come to worship this king. They didn't do anything then either. So it hasn't changed. They didn't do any of that. What did they do? They took counsel together. That's right out of Psalm 2. Remember last week we read that? They counseled together against the Lord's anointed, and he's in heaven laughing, as if make it as secure as you can. And... and, and and they, cut, they bring up a story. Hey, listen, here's what happens. The disciples come when you were asleep. Now, of course, how would they know the disciples came if they were asleep? I guess that's, a, that's what, you know, the lies produce lies produce lies kind of thing. But can you believe it? the story? I mean, just for a moment, I mean, just marvel with me over what we will do to not believe. Right, So the guards come, and they're going to say that we fell asleep, all of us, which was punishable by death for a Roman soldier to be asleep like that on duty. Uh, number two, uh, sorry, the Roman guards lost a prisoner. By the way, the prisoner was dead, so how do you lose a dead prisoner? That takes a lot. And number three, they didn't even pursue the perpetrators of the one who perhaps took the body. Now, they're not going to make a fast getaway if you're dragging a corpse behind you. And so they didn't even pursue him. I mean, the, the story is shot through with problems. And what does it reveal to us? The resurrection, believing in the resurrection is not an evidential or an intellectual problem. They didn't want to believe. They suppress, men and women suppress the truth of God because they do not want to submit to God. That's what Paul says clearly in Romans 1. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Do you remember what they said back in 2742? They said this. They said, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He, they, he came down. And they didn't believe. Why? Because they didn't want to. So I would say this, that the, the, the resurrection, believing in the resurrection, whether you're Christian or non-Christian here, believing in the resurrection is not an issue of evidence or intellect. 
It's not an issue of intellectual credibility. They saw the same thing. We see some chose to not believe. Why? They don't want to believe. They don't want to submit. Paul goes on in Romans and says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or they did not give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they don't want to submit to God. They want to be the captain of their souls. This is, this is uh, profound when you think of the implications. So if you're, if you're not a Christian here, I would ask you to consider why you don't believe. Is it evidential? It doesn't seem to be. Why don't you believe? I would ask you to consider that you might want to believe. That, that you, you hear this story and, and you're overwhelmed by the kindness of God to send a Savior in Christ that you might believe. Now when I talk about believing in the resurrection, believing in the truth of the resurrection, I'm not talking about an intellectual assent. You know, many things we believe demand nothing of us. Two plus two equals four. I believe that, but it demands nothing from me. But this is more of a, a moral knowledge. It's a knowledge that, if true, it demands a reorientation in life. And so to believe in Scripture means, and this is how people move from death to life, how they move from being not a Christian to being converted into Christianity, we repent of our sins. We recognize that Jesus hung on the tree for our sins. And so we repent. We distance ourselves from them. We are repenting before you, God, of our sins. And we are trusting in this crucified and yet uh, triumphant Jesus Christ for our salvation. We take the security of our souls in all of our lives, both now and forever, and we place them upon him and say, as he goes, so go I. He will be the one that I follow for the rest of my life. That's what it means to become a Christian. Uh, for the Christian here, though, I, I think you can profit from this 11 to 15 in terms of how you evangelize, how you speak to the things of God. I, I think it encourages evangelism in this way, that it's not by persuasion it, it's not by having the best arguments. It's not by knowing every jot and tittle of the scriptures that moves a person from darkness to light. It, it's not in having evidence that demands a verdict, although I have both volumes of the book. It, it doesn't work. I think it's reasonable to present evidence, and it is a basis upon which we believe, but it isn't the foundation. It, it just helps us understand, but it doesn't convert. So, so if you're a Christian here, rest. You have the capacity, as Edgar prayed, to declare that Jesus Christ is king and to not have everything wired. We know that it is only by the Spirit of God that has to wake the soul up to the truth of God. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, nobody can say Jesus is the Lord except by the Spirit. So, so it doesn't rest on your capacity to explain it, and in some respects, it doesn't rest in their capacity to understand it. God has to give grace in this transaction to wake them up to the truth of the scriptures. So I want to encourage you, even if there are those that you have been ministering to and they're just rejecting it, I would encourage you to keep praying for them and display the gospel to them 
recognizing that layer after layer after layer of argument isn't necessarily the way to go. It's declaring it and displaying it through your marriage and through your life. So when you think of the resurrection here, let me draw your mind to a few things here. The resurrection, it's a historical event. Our faith is not an ideology. It's not a philosophy. It's a truth rooted in a historical event. Uh, Number two, the resurrection vindicates Christ. It holds Christ up, and we're going to see this even more next week, but it coronates Christ, if you will. It crowns him. And this resurrection is the beginning of a new creation. We are in that creation now. That's why Paul says you are being renewed day by day. You're being made new even now. As you put off the old man, you put on the new man. And the resurrection also shows the kindness of Jesus. For those of you really struggling, I encourage you, turn to him and ask to be healed. And, and the resurrection shows us the, uh, the reason that we worship because of the message that it brings. And then it also shows us that it's not an intellectual problem. It's not based upon evidence. It's based upon God's spirit moving and uplifting his son in the lives of the people to whom you preach. So um, let me take a moment. Let's take a moment together silently. And uh, I would ask you to speak with God. Perhaps for some of you, it may be a confession of your sins, your failure to appreciate all that he's done. Perhaps some of you, it will be a time of sweet worship where you're just reminded over all that he is and has done for you. For others, maybe if you're not a Christian, it may be asking God, God, reveal yourself to me. If it's by your spirit, reveal your glory to me by your spirit that I may see you and believe. And then uh, Ray's going to close us in prayer.